0: Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we're moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello everybody, Charles Eisenstein here once again with Brock Dolman, founder of the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. And as usual, I don't have uh, an official bio of Brock. I I visited him a few months ago and experienced him as a savant of some sort, by which I mean somebody with an extraordinary connection to a certain field of knowledge and information. And I just, you know, just enjoyed basking in that, and having you lend me your eyes to see things that ordinarily I wouldn't have been able to see in the landscape, um, in the the water, the soil, and the that little uh, mound that you said, yeah, this is, you know, why is that there? Grapevines planted, you know, 150 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like this whole other landscape became visible. So when the fires broke out in California, I was thinking of you for one thing hoping that your center was not adversely affected and also wanting to uh, bounce off you my perception and see where it leads that ultimately this is about us not being in right relationship to water so with that welcome
1: brock it's good to see you yeah well good morning charles and thanks for having me on your podcast here i equally as well enjoyed the time sauntering about with you out here and have appreciated your work, work over the years. And certainly your latest book is a wonderful contribution into us thinking about a new a new story, a love story with with the planet, an opportunity to figure out how we embrace climate, I guess, as, as an indicator for us and an opportunity for us. Um, so yeah, uh, as far as myself out here in Western Sonoma County on the edge of the coast here in California, not far from the Pacific plate and those tectonics where we often say, if you find a fault, don't dwell on it. But nonetheless, (laughs) this is what most of us in California are doing. Um, And yeah, as far as the fires go, our center this year with these fires being across the state over in Butte County and Paradise there or down in Southern California, we weren't specifically threatened with the fire, but the level of smoke was really quite intense everybody had masks on for days i know we had some of the worst air quality in the world for a a week or so but compared to our our friends and loved ones and fellow folks in those cities who've lost everything in their homes and such we certainly send our our hearts and our healing out to those folks um in sonoma county northern california napa mendocino last year is when we had the big fires much closer to home and so we can certainly relate and one of the banners that sprang up around here at that time was basically this idea that the love in the air is thicker than the smoke. Mm. And we hope that that feeling pervades the other communities. And thankfully we just got six and a half inches of rain. And so the air cleared up and that has other issues for folks in the fire zone with muds and things like that. But, um, yeah, that dance between the water cycle and the fire cycle in response to how we've been treating the carbon, earth cycle and and how Mm -hmm. air as an intermediary those elemental uh, interactions and how life dances between earth, air, fire, and water is is something I'm always interested in as a a biologist, an ecologist, a a permaculture designer, agroecologist type person, trying to figure out how to support human communities to live in right relationship, as you just said, not only with water, but with fire, with earth, carbon, with air, with with life overall, Mm -hmm. so job security you you may have noticed that
0: uh donald trump tweeted about the fires that it was because of poor forest management and in an ironic way um he's right not because of what he thinks not because we're not cutting down enough trees and thinning enough trees and but because we're not relating to the forest in the
1: correct way do you have anything to say about that oh boy yeah (laughs) um well I would say, hashtag rake news, <laughs> which is what the folks in Finland, I think, had a great instead of fake news. It was rake news there mm-hmm. um, to rake the floor. No, I totally resonate with your the gist of that, which is what we know is um, when Donald Trump, or actually Ryan Zinke, apparently is supposed to be visiting paradise maybe today or tomorrow to see what the uh, all those radical environmentalists have not allowed them to do. And when they say forest management, I think most of us who can code switch understand that that's for them language to say industrial logging regimes and Mm -hmm. clear cutting or high grading big trees and that they haven't been allowed to to plunder the quote natural capital of our forests. which ironically we have less than two to five percent of what would be called old growth forests left in california or the pacific northwest or borderline the bulk of many parts of the planet So the mismanagement of our forests, our woodlands, our savannas, our prairies, our chaparrales, because of a clear-cut logic, a deforestation, desertification, resulting in degradation, desiccation, and decline. I would reference people to a wonderful book by John Perlin called A Forest Journey, The Role of Wood in the Development of Civilization. Starts with the Sumerians and the Fertile Crescent. Great read. And it's just You cut the watershed, system collapses, you go to the next one, and we've been kind of running that regime all over in California. Pacific Northwest is no exception to that. The land we live on has been clear-cut at least three times over since the Mm -hmm. 1870s. So the legacy of recovery of our forest systems in this case, or the chaparral systems of Southern California, those fires weren't forest-based at all. And in fact, in Paradise, what it looks like is it really wasn't a forest fire that did that community in. It was a brush fire that then leapt from building to building to building. It was an urban mm-hmm. structure fire, ultimately. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, but the pre existing conditions about the state of the landscape, because of the legacy of industrial, commoditized, destructive land abuse, is really the driving as I might, I often refer to as the pre-existing condition <laughs> and mm-hmm. Trump's healthcare doesn't want to cover that either. They just want to be in denial. So how do we recover fire resilient landscapes is really an engagement in life resilient landscapes. Primarily, I think starting with the water cycle, adapting on the water cycle as we mitigate on the carbon cycle is really, I think those are the two cycles of life. the central atom of all life is carbon, but the molecule of all life is, is water. And I really elementally think about restoration as sustainability, if you will, is our ability to sustain the cycles of life. And then we can't just sustain, we need to regenerate those cycles. And if you work on the carbon cycle and the water cycle, you'll get to the nitrogen cycles and phosphorus and life cycles. And and reverential reciprocity cycles so often think about regenerative reparations with the indigenous peoples, with all peoples, and with all of life on this planet. That's the work of the day in a new story, if you will. So one thing that disturbed me a little bit was the rush
0: among environmentalists to say, see, this is caused by climate change, uh, by which they mean caused by elevated levels of greenhouse gases. And while I'm not discounting that as part of the background conditions of the fires. I think that focusing too much on that leads us to think, okay, well, that's all that needs to change for us to have a healthy climate and not have fires. And I'm wondering, like, from your vantage point, what might be missing from the rush to blame it all on greenhouse gases? I mean, I know some of the or I anticipate some of the things you might say, but I really want to get this knowledge out there because I want people to be able to to act in a local place-based relational way, knowing that their interactions with the local soil, the forest, the water, are also part of planetary healing. And they can't just export their care onto distant policymakers who are going to save us by installing enough solar panels and cutting fossil fuel emissions. I mean, not that we shouldn't do that, but like what are the parts that need that we really need to be seeing right now?
1: Yeah. And maybe it's a product of education and, and, a our at least a dominant Western capitalist narrative that sees things as either black or white. It tries to make, simple didactic issues. The phrase I like a lot is, is really this notion of what we're experiencing are the synergistic effects of the cumulative impacts. And so for however long we want to talk about the impact of the deforestation and the plowing of soils and thousands of years of quote agriculture and industrial agriculture in more recent hundreds of years, It's been watershed by watershed by watershed. We've degraded the carrying capacity from a local condition across various continents with the ocean being the grand receiver. And now we've done so to a point where the feedback loops are acting out at global cycles, the ocean cycles, the the way the poles are, the jet streams, the Gulf streams, these things. So it's uh, independent of ever having to talk about climate change and the, and the new report that just came out on Black Friday in the afternoon, how fortuitous for the deniers, um, is that the clear cut of the landscapes, the near extinction of the salmon, the genocide of the native people, the loss of the grizzly bears where I live, the plowing of the prairies, the paving over those systems, those all occurred and the results of the outputs or the, quote, externalities to the macro capitalist. Have created the conditions conducive for what now we're referring to as a warming globe, global warming, where climates are now changing as ex- symptomatic expressions. So, our reverse, I think, is we got to restore it watershed by watershed. We have to rebuild the forests, rebuild the soils, rebuild the watersheds systematically towards resilience in an ad- adaptive mode. Unfortunately, while the access to high quality resources and intact ecological cycles and flows are significantly compromised. So we're starting mm-hmm. behind the gun and the, uh, the global weirding and the weather whiplash are turned up to 11 or 12 now. So they're just amplifiers of conditions that we already created in the past. Mm-hmm. And the work i am totally with you is there's that sense of, you know, uh, think globally, act locally kind of a thing. And, and that bumper sticker is super cheap. And yet, in the acting locally is where the work is. So organizing locally, physically doing the work locally, finding a just transition locally with all communities, a participatory process. I, I work a lot. We, Oxnard Arts and Equality Center, have a long history with an organization called Movement Generation Justice and Ecology Project comes mm-hmm. out of East Bay. Amazing folks, organizers, people of color organizers, and they've got a wonderful phrase I like a lot, which is that transition is inevitable, justice is not. And so what does justice look like? Justice for all people and justice for all life as we rebuild a resilient and reverential reparations. So a um, few things you mentioned back there, I'd like to
0: pick up on um, the salmon, the grizzlies. Uh, can you draw out how does the decimation of salmon or the damming of the access to their spawning grounds? Like, how does that cause forest fires? Like what does that have to do with it or global weirding?
1: Yeah. Well, um, so my primary first love, if you will, and figured out how to go to college and become a biologist is I'm a biologist by birth and been chasing fish and frogs and snakes and turtles since mm-hmm. I, you know, was early. And so the salmon and there's uh is here in sonoma county we're near the southern range if you will of what is often referred to as salmon nation in the pacific northwest wrapping all the way around over to kamchatka in japan we've got five to six species of pacific salmon what's really cool about salmon as a group of fishes you know related to trout is that they're anadromous which is a big word anadromy which basically means they're born in freshwater. Mm-hmm. they go out to the salt water they get super big cuz there's a lot more food out in the ocean and then they come back to fresh water they spawn and then they die and so that's a life cycle called anadromy what's really cool about salmon and they're famous people see images and think of salmon jumping waterfalls and maybe you see a grizzly bear standing on the waterfalls trying to catch one in its mouth and is that once that grizzly bear catches that salmon it goes off into the woods and grizzly bears do what they do do when they do do in the woods and what's this thing is called the anadromous nutrient pump and it's it's a nutrient cycle and so these marine derived nutrients think of fish emulsion fertilizer for the gardeners out there all the nitrogen phosphorus potassium calcium magnesium the NPK the micro macronutrients You've got a king salmon, a Chinook salmon. My sweetie, Carrie Brady, and I were just out at a creek called Dry Creek yesterday to go witness and welcome back the Chinook salmon. And so we saw a dozen very large, two to three foot, 20 pound king Chinook salmon recently arriving back and spawning and digging nests. That 20 pounds of fish, after it makes its babies, lays its eggs in the little nest called a red, um, in the gravel there, is going to die. And then the otters and the bears and the native peoples and some modern peoples and raccoons and everybody eats that. And then hopefully they get to distribute those nutrients on the creek bank, up the hill slope. And there's a lot of interesting science looking at these. You can look at the isotopes of, say, the nitrogen or the phosphorus. And you can tell the scientific folks with enough technology there can figure out is that isotope of marine origin or not they found some trees in Oregon on a salmon-bearing stream, the Douglas fir trees. Fifty to sixty percent of the nitrogen in the needles of the tree was of marine origin isotopically. Uh-huh. So the, the relationship of watersheds that have salmon in them is that the salmon, as, uh, as the rainfall comes in the system and leaches nutrients out of watersheds and flows out to the ocean, life evolved an organism like salmon or lamprey to go out to the ocean, get really big, bring those salts back, spawn and die, and then feed the rest of the watershed to increase the, the resilience and the health and the nutrients of, of it's of that whole, the nourishment, if you will, literally feeding the entire watershed. And I think that relates to if those when those forests were intact, and quote, old growth or late seral stage, and fire had visited those forests frequently but with a low intensity so that the structure of the forest could handle fire coming through as a regenerative disturbance regime and the forests were healthy because they had plenty of nutrients and they had plenty of leaf litter and duff and surface air and leaves to slow the water down and spread the water out and sink it and store it and share it. You can see how the the integrity of that system again being fed by the flesh of dead salmon as they gave themselves in death as a part of their life. And so that life and death as a reciprocal relationship mm-hmm. that builds resiliency and the loss of salmon in our Pacific Northwest system and wherever people live, pick your totem organism. Passenger pigeon was a totem nutrient distributor on chestnuts through massive amounts of nutrients. And, mm-hmm. and then grizzly bear is really that interesting piece or wolves those keystone species that are regenerative disturbers with respect to population structure and relationship so that the herbivores, like the classic Yellowstone story, I think has gotten a lot of airplay of the reintroduction of wolves because Mm -hmm. the elk got lazy and fat and ate all the willows and the aspens and therefore the streams collapsed and the beavers went away and the songbirds lost habitat. Um, So how do we have regenerative relationship with disturbance? There's that phrase, change is the only constant, and disturbance is a driver, and you're either ecologically illiterate regenerative disturber or an ecologically illiterate degenerative disturber. Uh-huh. My humble opinion is modern industrial Western capitalism is degeneratively disturbing, and the way forward is to become regenerative disturbers. Right.
0: Yeah, this is one of the points I made in my book. It's like, it's not a matter of we've no trace and and not be not interfere in nature, but it's we have to admit that we are here and it's a and it's a matter of what kind of disturbance or what kind of impact, not having no impact. To have a yeah. have a, a beneficial impact that is in service to life, we have to understand what we're part of.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I think this is it's it disturbs people to get out of the notion of that Eurocentric wilderness idea, where it was just a beautific place and everything worked in harmony, and they showed up in North America. And there was a lot of people living here before. Read read 1493, after you read 1491, Charles Mann's books. And the Bay Area, um, and I do want to acknowledge and honor that here in Western Sonoma County, we are within the Tribal sovereign nation of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, which are Southern Pomo people and Coast Miwok people And they're still here and we work with them and collaborate with them as allies and the relationship of their Ancestors who lived in these watersheds for upwards of 500 generations 10,000 years at least um, For those folks who were bragging about their third and fourth fifth generation and these folks were here for 500 There's a wonderful book by Kat Anderson called Tending the Wild. Mm -hmm. And it really gets into this idea of of us humans, our bipedal sacs of saline solution with an opposable thumb and a frontal lobe and a connection to fire, this Promethean gift or bane. We're in a reverential relationship, and there is reciprocity in the classic um, idea of indigenous wisdom around thinking about all my relations, uh, honoring all my relations or what Dennis Martinez would refer to as a kin-centric worldview, mm-hmm. that we are kin with all and and such. And so the honoring of, I often refer to a play on Cat's books named Tending the Wild, and our work of the day right now is Mending the Wild,
0: mm-hmm. but we're
1: part of the wild. We're, we're within an integral component. And are we a planetary pariah or a cosmic keystone? Ecologically literate humans can participate reverentially and regeneratively as keystone species to create conditions conducive for life mm-hmm. or not. And yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a choice, collective choice, individual choice.
0: I, I see climate change as um, offering us an initiation into stepping into a role as a keystone species. Not that human beings haven't done it before, um, pre-civilized ones but for civilization to step into that role would be something new on Earth because civilization has been degenerative from the perspective of the rest of life. And, and like you were talking about the salmon, the grizzly bears, the, the the role of animals in nutrient transport, you know, I know that even if you're just looking at it from a carbon frame, the ability of ecosystems to sequester carbon is limited by the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen available. So. And normally they would be brought in by, by birds and megafauna, you know, and, and there would be these all, these all these loops and cycles just like a living being, which is why I think that we need to look at Earth as a living being. I mean, it has every aspect of a physiology and to see, see wolves, say, or um, salmon or bears as among the organs or the tissues of this living being. Then, then when, when we're in that way of seeing, then we can't reduce things to just carbon dioxide and think that if we could only install enough carbon-sucking machines, then the problem would be solved. And, you know, who cares about the salmon? I mean, yeah, it's nice to have salmon, but that's not the crisis. So this way of looking at things expands the crisis to everything. And including not just the things that are ecological but things that are social too because how how are we going to ever be a regenerative mending force on this planet if we are at war with ourselves if we don't have coherence around that vision of ourselves which means that social healing is part of the same picture as as we become um yeah step into being a a true keystone species
1: so I'm with you, totally with you. I, I, as a, as a biologist, whose general preference is to be out in uh, systems where there's uh, a least amount of humans as possible, I've never actually lived in a city in my life. I'm Country bumpkin by choice and privilege, and um, but I've ended up. A lot of the work I do is what I refer to as ecosystem restoration, because mm-hmm. if we're going to restore ecosystems. The the degradative driver in the system is this socio-political cultural spiritual conundrum of humans with an economic model dominant one that i think you write really way, well about that lacks it's a lack of sacred economics um and so yeah how do we restory this, the fundamental story the mythos a love story with life i'm a life lover and as a biologist a, a biophiliac I'm, I'm i'm just a dick i am a i'm a, an a a deeply addicted biophiliac and uh, and so I, I I'm with you that the the opportunity is is that because of these the physics and the thermal forcing of processes of the chemistry of how it is that the combustion of fossil fuels has derived this fever that the planet's running, and most of that fever is held in the ocean and the air it's the systems out the gate, the thermodynamics are out the gate, that news report just confirmed once again on the temperature increase and the associated impacts. So climate change is the initiation and initiations are their rites of passage. And those folks who are prepared for that initiation that rite of passage at the watershed scale at the regional scale with enough social policy and connectivity and, and, and landscapes that are performance-based with respect to dealing with the weather whiplash, the the drought to deluge, the fire to flood, the increasing extremes of what is so-called normal, those watersheds will fare better than those that don't. And it's not being pejorative or one way or another, but I look at watersheds as living lifeboats. And from ridgeline to river mouth and summit to sea, I have for years did a program called Basins of Relations, starting and sustaining community watershed groups. Mm. How do we organize ourselves based on topography and hydrology and pyrology and geology life from the ridgeline to river mouth to rethink and retrofit the resilience of every human land use to be regenerative in the moment we need it right now because our systems are collapsing and the soil's gone and the dead zones are bigger and extinction's happening and poverty's uh, uh, run amok. And in the face of the increased extremes that we're witnessing, again, though, it's, it's just basic natural selection in a certain sort of way. And the folks who've adapted and mitigated to resiliency have the possibility of their broad-scale systems performing better than others. And, it, and that's a collective, shared, social, cultural opportunity. But it's got to be based on a new story that we have agency if we work together cooperatively and convivially. But that means we need to share and, and all those kindergarten um, rules and regulations about sharing your toys and being nice and not hitting and not running and doing those things. But kind of lost that.
0: Yeah. I want to add to this that a healthy watershed isn't only more resilient to the um, macro level weirding that's going on. But it also contributes to stabilizing and and even reversing climate change um, not only because of carbon sequestration, but because intact forests especially, they stabilize weather patterns through the various mechanisms, but especially the biotic pump. I mean, you were speaking of the the leaf litter and the the leaves slowing down the water. Um, If there is a healthy understory and healthy root system that slows down, that prevents erosion from happening. The water sinks in, which is another reason I think why wolves and cougars and bears are so important to keep in check the herbivores that might otherwise destroy the understory. But anyway, so you know when you have a healthy forest, then it's transpiring all that moisture, which then rises, condenses, creates low pressure zones that uh, affect the um, patterns of airflow, the winds and the, and the, the other climate patterns. Uh, that keep climate relatively stable and so when the forests get destroyed then the the geological flows of moisture and everything else no longer are held in place. So by regenerating the the forests, it's not only resiliency, it's also helping to stabilize the weather on the whole planet. Yeah, there's one more thing that you were saying that I wanted to pick up on.
1: I'll just say hallelujah to that. Michael Kravchik would be so good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the biotic pump, uh, yeah. the, the new water paradigm work. That this new website I'd refer people to Rain for Climate. I'm totally with you. The, what is referred to as the small water cycles of um, super important. And right. And that. And I think to your point, while you're trying to remember that, um, is that the uh, so there's the large water cycles. What I and for us in California the how it is that the jet stream relates to the arctic melting and the pacific ocean temperatures and those flows we have these large water cycles and we get these atmospheric rivers or we get blocking high pressure zones and that but once that train is out the gate and we get to deal with it but once that vapor those clouds or that rain or snow in the sierras gets over top of our landscapes we're no longer a victim of climate change anymore we now get to participate in how that that amazing gift from Gaia of liquid, pure, distilled water from the sky comes down. And how does it interact in our living landscapes? And do we slow it and sweeten it and spread it and share it and clean it? Or do we pollute it and send it back to the ocean as fast as possible? if the integrity of the native vegetation communities of that place, whatever they evolved to be based on the climate of that area, the Mediterranean climate or temperate or Pacific Northwest rainforest has integrity, that thermal mass of a forest that holds water that's cooler, that is conducive to precipitation versus a deforested or urban heat island effect that pushes those clouds up and sends them further away and we don't get rain and doesn't hold the soil and doesn't infiltrate groundwater and doesn't cycle and doesn't create all the goodness. And so that's the beauty of, I think, the empowerment we all get to have when we think about the opportunity of, of retrofitting our living lifeboats. Our watersheds is exactly what you said, is that the virtuous cycles that come about when you're engaged in regenerative disturbance and right relations with water with carbon with life with community and it it results in abundance which for some of us means is we get to dance because our buns are dancing because there's so much abundance versus scarcity where we're scared in the city and fighting for scraps and the whole scarcity myth and you do a really great job Talking about that with economics is such a falsely created scenario that scarcity is just an externalized imposition of the folks who want to hold power on perceived access or not to quote wealth.
0: Yeah, um, we we do live in a world of artificial scarcity side by side with obscene overabundance. Obscene, right? And I think that the uh, flood drought cycle is an illustration of that or an example of that, where the most abundant substance on Earth, water has been made scarce, mostly through human activity, except when it's in overabundance in the flood part of the cycle.
1: The irony is is the condition of the landscape, a typical rainfall that would have landed on a sponge of a landscape with the soils and the vegetation and the wetlands and the riparian corridors intact, wouldn't have created a flood. But if you clear cut it, pave it, pipe it, pollute it, plunder it, and profiteer from it. Then all of a sudden, and then you have so much water, so now you need to put it in a channelized trapezoidal cement channel to make it go away. still trying to figure out where away is on a finite planet because we live on planet water, not planet earth. And this unique, amazing Mickey Mouse molecule of H2O that can inhabit three phase states of a solid, a liquid, and a vapor. Folks are pushing for the fourth phase state, which is kind of gelatinous, but Mm -hmm. leave that one on the side for a second. And what's really cool is we get to participate in the fact that by volume, all life is mostly water. And even in the carbon folks, the the carbon farming and the regenerative agriculture folks, the people who more recently gotten on board with, Oh my goodness, there's this thing called photosynthesis. And if sunlight kicks off a process in a chlorophyll cell, then CO2 is taken out of the atmosphere and can be turned into this amazing carbohydrate and stored in the soil or put in our bodies. And yet the liquid carbon pathway, Dr. Christine Jones's take on this, is if if you go to any desert, a proper desert, Mojave Desert, Sonora Desert, I love deserts, uh, what's in short supply there is, is water, not sunlight. And so the ability to fix carbon into soil to sequester it into plants is the water cycle is, is the ultimately the limiting factor. And so I think if people are freaked out about the current disarray of the carbon cycle, because we're combusting too much of the hydrocarbons and you want to turn them into carbohydrates with the help of photosynthesizing plants and bacteria and algae, then you got to kick the water cycle to drive that process. And so that's the beauty of those two cycles. Um, the carbon water yeah. cycle. Imagine that uh,
0: that you are appointed uh, dictator of California and you could implement any policies and your job is stop these forest fires from happening, like do whatever it takes. What, what would you tell, say, cities to do? What would you tell farmers to do? What would you tell um, the people who are watching the forests like what what are the most important things to do and maybe even down to the individual level what how can people participate in
1: a uh, healthy landscape well i mean i think for our society in california and, and the u.s as well is it's really about reapportioning what we perceive of as wealth as money and so getting a hold of the purse I think in the legislature say, and figuring out because ironically, we're the supposedly the, the wealthiest nation on the planet, or the California's got one, you know, the, depending on where you're at, fifth, sixth, seventh largest economy, depending on where the stock market's at any day. And yet we have unemployment that's out of control, ecological illiteracy is an epidemic, the nature deficit disorder, and our forests, our wetlands, water quality the endangered species. So I think that if we re if we actually came up with a series of of programs that actually invested in the education from K-12, the technical training of people at rural, urban, suburban scales to then with the money to invest in strategic renovation, if you will, restoration, rethink. Um, And so within the forests, depending on the kind of forest and where that forest is, there would, there's an appropriate plan to figure out how we're going to reinvest in resiliency in a forest, in our mountain meadows, in our rangelands or prairie systems, which are cover half of California. How are we going to actually use those cows, get them out of the feedlots, which is just cow switch, and actually have regenerative planned grazing, holistic management that can support the recovery of those ecosystems while we have an economically viable output. I know not everybody eats meat; that doesn't have to be the case. In the coastal zone, our urban areas. You know what's interesting is the Clean Water Act. Thank you, Nixon. The Endangered Species Act. Um, what we in the in the U.S. we a number of people like to throw around the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and unfortunately, what. Got missed, and Bill McDonough speaks of this really well. Is that we missed the bill of responsibilities? So then we legislate, and judicially, uh, we through the judiciary, we force collective responsibility for the public trust in the face of private poverty or private pop- property, and therefore now we've got a schism of, oh, you're those radical environmentalists who are trying to protect the spotted owl are taking my private property right to plunder the natural capital of this system? Because we're, we're legislating responsibility in the fictitious sense that rights trump, I'll leave that stand, trump the, uh, the collective whole of the public trust. And so we, we lack trust in public anymore. So how do we reinvest in the public trust resources and through our water boards through the clean water act is where i was headed with this of the point source pollutions and non-point source pollution what that's getting to and now in california our sustainable groundwater management act is if you're going to clean the water up and adequately store enough of it for supply for people and for salmon for instance and everybody else you're going to have to think like a watershed and you're going to have to rethink industrial agriculture and plowing and chemicals and erosion and overgrazing and confined animal feeding operations and urban runoff and parking lots. And so water again leads the way on behalf of, as Luna Leopold would say, the health of our waters is the principal measure of how we live on the land. And so water, the health, the quantity and quality of water in your place is an or an indicator of the resiliency and health of your relationship with that place at a watershed scale, and ultimately at the planetary scale, um, because all the water ends up going to the ocean, which is seventy percent of the surface of this planet. So I think that's where I would take the idea we're twenty-one trillion in debt federally right now because we just basically did a tax and spend Republican strategy here, and. 60 plus people have half the wealth on this planet right now is is just absurd and and uh, (laughs) I want to redistribute wealth throughout the watershed to the function of the whole system including the the folks who then have right livelihoods to get to participate in regenerative relationship with each other with the land with connection with community with clean food and clean water and and butterflies and it sounds Pollyanna but it's actually uh, quite doable and we're, we're engaged yep. in Sonoma County in a ton of projects implementing the heck out and of
0: it. It's true. Like when, when people start to, to do these things to heal land and heal the water, like the butterflies come back and the songbirds come back and the springs that were dry start flowing again. I mean, you've had this kind of thing happen on your
1: land, if I recall as a Gaianist, if you will, sort of taking off on the James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis notion of Gaia, you mentioned earlier, this living, breathing, respiring, metabolizing, self-organizing organism itself, the presence of life on this planet for 3.8 billion years has created conditions conducive for more life. If you get on board with the life path and you support life a little bit, Wow, Gaia, she she's so ready to return and, and rewild herself, and we work a lot on rewilding projects. We've got a beaver project and coho projects, and we're about to start working on elk because it appears that elk just rewilded themselves to our watershed and haven't been here since 1860. Mm-hmm. And life... You give it, you give her a, just a little handout and the return on investment, if you will, to use a, a bad economic metaphor, the ROI of life-based investments, of regenerative investments, pays back, quote, dividends that are unbelievable for mm-hmm. the fecundity of all of all of us.
0: Yeah, that's, for me, that's the, you know, when I get into despair mode at all that's happening on the planet. Um, that's what I come to is the incredible resiliency of life. The healing power, the healing capacity of life is just, all it needs to be is is the pump needs to be primed a little bit. It just needs to be unlocked. And the healing that can happen is just incredible.
1: I'm totally with you. You know, you eloquently speak a lot about just this issue of separation, and it often makes me think that collectively, the vast majority of humans on the planet are suffering from an extreme case of separation anxiety mm-hmm. we're separated from, from our connection to each other and to life and to a purpose that where we can be in service to a greater good of life versus uh, the, the guilt of feeling like we're just a pariah on the planet. Yeah. And this, this level of collective trauma Which is why I really appreciate the work of Peter Levine and my partner, you know, Carrie Brady and her program, Ecology of Awakening, that does somatic experiencing, this body-based neurophysiology trauma work and understanding epigenetics these days and how we as everybody on the planet has just got so many levels of legacy epigenetic trauma. And we have a program here in the garden, in our garden, um, our organic garden here, and it's, it's basically a horticultural therapy program and people come every Wednesday to volunteer and you get your hands in living soil and you smell the actinomycetes and your body resonates with an elder that's hundreds of millions of years old and you get happy and you start connecting and you're grounded and you got some dirt under the nails and a little bit of your lower backs feeling into it and, and muscle memory, kinesthetics, that muscle memory doing if for me, kin aesthetics is recognizing the aesthetics that we're kin with all. That's kin aesthetics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just having these these uh, visions of, of a healed landscape and how it's so close, and sometimes seems to be. Sometimes it seems like it's getting closer and closer, and farther and farther away at the same time that we are really in, and I, I hesitate to say that we're in a crucial moment and to feed that kind of urgency that needs to get things done fast and right now. But I will still say that we are in a crucial moment as, as far as a crossroads where we have two paths ahead of us. And this is true personally and collectively, like what, what story do we participate in? Collectively, the story for our culture that guided us for so long, no longer operates very well. The story of America, the story of civilization and what we're gonna become when we fill the world with robot servants and conquer everything. And (laughs) and so I think that what we're talking about here is a new story that says, yeah, here is why you're here. Here's what a human being is. Here is your purpose here. It's to participate in the regeneration of flourishing life on earth. And if we can cohere around that story collectively and translate that into our systems, for example, the money system, you you, you talked about the concentration of wealth, half the wealth in the world is owned by 60 people. But really what that is, what all that money is, it's not even real, $16 trillion of debt. That's just a number in a computer. And what it represents is our collective agreement about what's important, what's valuable and where to direct our energy and attention and creativity. So that's why I I am interested in economics because for our energy and attention and creativity to be redirected toward healing requires a change in that system. And not only a change of heart among those 60 wealthy people because they find even if they have a change of heart, that they are systemically constrained. And then there's the mysterious part, too, where our personal change of heart does, in a mysterious way, exercise systemic effects through the principle of morphic resonance. And that is what gives us that serenity when we're in the garden, smelling the soil, uh, caring for a plant, to know that this moment is significant for all beings not just myself and it's okay for me to devote myself to what i care about here and now
1: hallelujah to that i i'm with you on on the sense of not wanting to uh in incite the essence of urgency where we it's like well we don't have time to talk or to sort that out or that we've just got to do 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 and and run roughshod over a, an inclusive and true deep seated healing and as you as you, I agree with your piece there that um I think it's pretty clear that at least with respect to just the basics of thermodynamics and energy transfer on this planet and the relationship of temperature increase and the associated implications that that uh, that the planet Expresses when it tries to adapt to that temperature of a hot ocean, hot air, is where we, with respect to contributing more of the various heat trapping gases to the system right now, we we do have a very special window right now where we should have started a long time ago, we should have probably never been doing it, but I, I guess I find myself compelled by the, the reports and such from the IPCC and others that the next 10, 15, 10 years. 12, 15 years are pretty critical for us to figure that out. Meanwhile, while the mitigation folks, the Paris Accord type folks, are trying to figure that out, the rest of us are all clear that it's here, it's been here for a while, it meaning uh, global weirding. And we've just got to get down to the collective work of figuring out how to get along with each other at regional and watershed scales to batten down the hatches and begin to adapt. And That is not a, that's not a fear-based response. I resonate with your points you've made in other talks. That's a love-based response. That's an embrace of being a part of versus apart from and finding a collective flow state, if you will, to be back in right relationship with living systems. And, and it's not a utilitarian, uh, mechanistic need. It's, it's just the right relationship to be connected. And I I appreciate the work and, and teach a bit with Brian swim, Uh um, and his work and the, the, you know, the journey of the universe and Mary Evelyn Tucker Tucker and their inspiration through Thomas Berry and the new story work and and your work with the the space between stories. And we are betwixt in between, as you said, on a pathway, a diversion at a, a fork in the road. And Woo, we're either going to get a fork full of, of death or we're going to get a fork full of life. And I would rather <laughs> choose the life path and yeah. work on behalf of the life path.
0: And in a way, that choice will always be present for us. Like, it's never too late to choose the path of life. For me, it's a question of how much are we willing to lose before we choose that path? We've already lost a lot. You know, we've lost the passenger pigeon. We've lost the Formosan cloud leopard. You know, we've lost so much already. And I really want us
1: right now to choose the life path. Yeah. I am I mean, by profession, I'm an endangered species vertebrate biologist. That's mainly what I figured out how to do. And that leads me to permaculture and regenerative agriculture and urban design and green building and all of that as a way to try to figure out how to get humans to stop Messing systems up that result in the extinction of life forms and, but I I spend a lot of time with the final owls and foxes and salamanders and frogs and turtles and And it, if anybody thinks we're not in the great sixth extinction wave, then they're not paying attention and the Idea that is an expression of our collective shared human occupation in this moment on the planet and we can't outsource that guilt to somebody else or to your point much earlier try to then just blame it on climate change and then feel like we have to abdicate our connection because we can't do anything or we're looking for the silver bullet the single solution there is no silk a tapestry is woven thread by thread and the warp of elements and the weft of life come together and we've got to reweave the web of life and the tapestry of life. And that's, all of us need to become weavers together and, 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 and work on that because it's a fragmented tattered uh, web of life at the moment. Yeah. And I think maybe, maybe another way to look at the initiation,
0: what we're being initiated into, you know, any single bullet solution or any solution that, doesn't take into account the salmon is not a satisfying solution to me and i it cannot be a true solution so the initiation and being into a holistic understanding uh, that all beings contribute to the resiliency and the 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 well-being of all beings
1: yeah i when when folks you know out here like we have the california delta and there's a little fish the delta smelt for instance Mm -hmm. and and at some point folks are, are the snail darter in the Southeast and, and you, and the classic people are like, well, we can't afford to save, you know, the, the blah, blah, blah. And if you're willing to throw the salmon under the bus uh-huh. to continue to prop up your fantasy that you need the bus to keep going. And it's fueled by this toxic substance that externalizes its impact all over every life form we have deserves to have a seat in the front of the bus. Mm-hmm. just like everybody deserves a front of, in fact, we should just abandon the bus and all walk together and yeah. just, and stop throwing life under the bus because we're, the bus is going to a bust. And, you know, I really appreciate the, I don't know if you know who Oren Lyons is. He's mm-hmm. an Onondaga faith keeper there, Iroquois Confederacy folks. And they've got a great saying, which I just resonate a lot with. And I was at Bioneers a few years ago and I got to ask him if I was quoting him correctly and he agreed that basically what he says is what you people call resources. Our people call relatives Mm -hmm. and that reconnection to relationship with all of life and the processes that create conditions conducive for life is about relationship with relatives. That's a family kindred relationship and nobody gets hucked under the bus. Right. And we just need to find our proper place as regenerative disturbers in the mix and back off on the hubris and and find the humility stance to be human to rebuild humus with a little bit of humor mm-hmm. Yes,
0: awesome maybe do, is there anything I think we should probably wrap it up. We could talk a long a lot longer, um, but is there anything you want to um, let people know about I mean I'm sure people can go to the website and find programs and stuff at
1: yeah, I mean, certainly people can go to Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, oaec.org. I, I co-direct with Kate Lundquist, a water institute. and We've got a bunch of really interesting programs. Our Basins of Relations is a publication that people might find helpful. Our Bring Back the Beaver campaign is really drilled down mountain meadows. With Kendall Dunnigan, I co-direct our Permaculture and Resilient Community Design Program. And there, we're really on the ground working with Folks to see permaculture as a design method for regenerative human settlements based on natural patterns and processes. And we have a wildlands program here. We've got a couple hundred page stewardship plan that was partially funded by the state and the feds as a planning document that is really down to nitty gritty details. And if people would like to be inspired on how we look at our 80 acres here and, and evaluate it, assess it, the existing conditions and come up with a plan for uh, action steps to restore it on behalf of creating conditions for life in the fire, water, air, earth and life strategy. So, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of being able to say in my experience when I did or in our experience when we did. I, I, li- I like to be able to mm-hmm. have dirt under the nails and lower back into this thing when we're suggesting what to do yeah. and then we We do it, and we educate and we train on it, and then we ultimately are engaged in changing the rules and we we've got a compost toilet process study right now, like what if we basically stopped defecating in the water cycle and started defecating in the carbon cycle and regenerated that system so when you come to visit us at Oac, we want you to to not forget your toiletries, as they say, right because we're going we're reclaiming and recycling that material, so lots of work and and then there's larger scale projects. I would reference people to California Climate and Agriculture Network, which is a project of OEC through Renata Brillinger that looks at reinvesting all of our polluter paid money, which is a couple billion bucks in California, into supporting agriculture and retrofitting itself into not climate smart, which is a, is Monsanto's euphemism to be on or in USDA's, um, but actually integrative uh, retrofit of agriculture to reinvest the billions of dollars into an agriculture that actually is regenerative for the soil, for place, for people, and for a a livelihood that is just, but not excessive. Mm -hmm. So lots of opportunity, Um, come out and volunteer with us every Wednesday, Garden Volunteer Day, we'll feed you lunch. Um, Yeah, awesome. Yeah, great, well this is
0: super important work, I just really uh, wanna encourage everybody to think about these things when you, Especially when you're you know, in climate despair, to, to understand that this is a call to loving relationship to all of our relatives, especially the, so- the soil, the water, the trees, and life. And that if we listen to that call, then the crisis and the being that we call climate change will have served its function to bring us into our next phase of human being as civilized beings. Yeah. Thank you, Brock, for taking the time to talk to me
1: um, and everybody. Yeah. Thank you, Charles, for the invitation. Totally appreciate it. And I, as you said, we could keep talking a whole lot more. So I look forward to that and in person or in whatever way makes sense. It's super, super juicy and and inspiring. Love Love the connection. Great. Thanks.
0: This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content everything's the same and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out also on the site you can find archived episodes along with everything else that i produce essays books videos online courses thank you very much for listening and i'll be with you again next time